Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Absolutely. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. Well, it certainly is a way for a way of life for me anyway. And I, I know it is for uh, for you history enthusiasts out there. And for those of you who, who it's not a way of life for, that's perfectly fine. Honestly, if you spend uh, any time, any a good amount of time listening to any history podcast where you're, where you're picking up this kind of information, uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. So yes, indeed, welcome back. It is great to have you folks with me on the podcast once more. This is going to be episode number 48, uh, creeping up on episode number 50. I tell you, you know, when I started this thing, I, I didn't really... I didn't know how far I'd get, to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't know whether or not there would even be anybody listening to the podcast at, at some point, you know, because any I think I think everybody feels that way uh, when they start a podcast. Well, not everybody. I should rephrase. Not everybody feels that way when they start a podcast. There's a lot of million-dollar podcasters out there who know that they're going to have an audience as soon as they hit episode number one. But for those of us uh, like myself who are not million-dollar podcasters and who are really just um, enthusiasts of some kind or another, whatever that is— uh, and are doing a podcast for about something that they're passionate about, in my case, history, and specifically the Founding Fathers, you never really know. So I, I certainly thank you folks out there who are uh, keeping the podcast going by listening to by listening to it on a regular basis, and there are quite a few of you out there who do, and I uh, certainly appreciate that. And I especially uh, appreciate you folks out there who spread the word about the podcast and get the, get the, get the word out and let other people know that this podcast actually exists. Uh, that's half the battle. I think there's a lot of pe- a lot more people out there who really want to listen to stories about the Founding Fathers, and more specifically, their actual letters and correspondence, so they can hear about the real people, and they can under- they can hear the real voice of the Founding Fathers, not just some story kind of created out of the mind of somebody who has either studied the Founding Fathers or who hasn't, but uh, the real words. Uh, but uh, a lot of times they just don't know that the podcast exists, and you know, a lot of you folks out there who spread the word about the podcast, you do the yeoman's work trying to get the uh, the the word out there about it, and I certainly appreciate it. that's That's helped the uh, listenership of the podcast grow. So we are going to continue to march on. This is going to be a feature-length episode of the podcast, by the way. Uh, we're going to get into the letters. We got a couple of letters here for you today. These are and these are good letters. I think uh, we're going to hear some uh, some good stuff from uh, our friend Mr. Adams. John Adams is going to join us as a guest on the podcast, as is uh, our friend from across the pond, so to speak. And that would be Edward Dilley of London. Uh, he's going to join us on the podcast as well, and we're going to be going to we're going to be going live to both of them from 1775. So prepare yourself for a uh, another good update from London and a response to that update by Mr. Adams. I always enjoy those. It's always good to hear from the folks across the pond uh, during this particular time period, especially people who supported the colonies. Uh, it's easy for some folks out there who haven't studied a great deal of the founding of the country to think that the people in Britain were united against the people in the colonies, but they weren't. And they were not united behind tyranny. The, that would be the tyranny of King George III. You know, tyrants very rarely have 
a unified country behind them. They try to force it. They try to force unity by making everybody comply. They come out with their mandates. They come out with their dictates. They come out with their orders, executive orders in the case of the United States of America. They, they come out with these things and they try to force people to comply. But um, it, it doesn't typically work 100%. There, there's always a few stalwarts out there who refuse to comply with tyrannical dictates. And I know there's going to be some new folks who've maybe joined the podcast who haven't heard me talk about executive orders before, and it's going to be like, oh, Roman, what are you saying, Roman? Are you, are you saying that executive orders are tyranny? No, not really. I've talked at length about that a couple, at least once, and I know I've mentioned it a couple of times. I don't think executive orders are tyranny all the time. I just think they can be used that way. Uh, anytime you have a central power issuing orders from his desk, that's it's fairly dangerous. I'm just going to put that out there. It's a very dangerous thing for a central power to do is start issuing dictates from the central power. You know, it it doesn't um, eventually over time it ju it doesn't go well because it becomes too tempting for the tyrant to use that to get what he wants faster than the way than how he can get it going through a legislature. Uh, tyrants at the end of the day don't like legislatures because they don't always do what he wants them to do or she wants them to do if it's a female tyrant and there there have been those in the his, in history as well. Uh, so-called Catherine the Great from Russia is a prime example of that which I mean she, oh, she was called the Great so how bad could she have been? She was pretty bad. I'm just going to put that out there. She was not really that great. Neither was uh, Peter the Great by the way. Peter the Great was a pretty terrible guy most days. Uh, people people think maybe he was a good guy because he was called the Great, but he was actually fairly terrible. Now, for the time, maybe he was great. I, I don't know. The standards of the day were were pretty loose. Um, they had a pretty low bar for what was what would be called a benevolent dictator back then. But anywho, um, yes. So there were people in London who did not fall in line with the great tyrant dictator King George the Third, and thank goodness for that. And of course, the colonists. Thank goodness they didn't fall in line with the great dictator. And that's that's very brave of them because usually what happens when you don't fall in line with the great dictator is he pulls his guns out and he starts shooting at people. And lo and behold, that's exactly what he did. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, what you know, the the voice of somebody who doesn't fall in line with the tyrant, even though he's living right there in London, it would be very tempting to him for him for him to fall in line. I would think it would be very convenient for Mister Dilly to fall in line with the tyrant king. It's always convenient to just listen to the tyrant and do what the tyrant says, but it's it's rarely a, a smart idea. It's uh, usually the realm of fools and cowards that, that do stuff like that. So just keep that in mind. And that, that's why Mr. 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 Dilly was neither. He was neither a fool nor a coward, which if you're wondering what his motivations were, why was he Why was he in support of the colonists? Because honestly, he saw the good in it. He saw that they were right. He saw that they, they had a legitimate gripe and he wasn't blinded by ideology. He wasn't blinded by party. He wasn't blinded by his self-imposed stupidity. This was an educated man, very intelligent, just like a Benjamin Franklin or a John Adams. The, these guys were very well studied, very well read. So we're going to talk about these folks, Mr. Dilly and Mr. Adams, today on this podcast. So why don't we get started doing that right now? Absolutely. Let's let's get started with uh, Mr. Dilly and his letter. This was written from Edward Dilly to John Adams on January the 13th of 1775. Very crucial year in the history of the world. Not just the history of the United States, not just the history of the British Empire, but the history of the world. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day. Uh, this is just an aside. I'll get to the letter here in a second. I just thought I'd mention this. I was talking to somebody the other day about how important it is 
when you elect somebody to lead a country like the United States of America. Oftentimes, people don't take it seriously enough. You know, they vote for people out of greed. They vote for people out of selfishness. They vote for people who are just going to give them what they want, etc., etc. But they don't vote for them based on what's going to happen to other people around the world. Because they don't care. They don't really care about other people around the world. They just care about themselves. They can't see past their own shadow. Or they think the axis of the world runs right through the center of their head. But uh, just like, you know, the British Empire throughout its history was very important to the world and had a great had an impact. Not, not always good. Sometimes it was pretty terrible. But anything that happened to the British Empire and anything that happened to the United States, which is an offshoot of the British Empire, is very important. It's very impactful. So that, that's why I say that uh, 1775 was an important year, not just in the history of the United States of the British Empire, but of the history of the world. Uh, it changed the world. And that's why, again, we do this podcast and why we study this material. This isn't, you know, history that doesn't matter. This is history that matters, should matter to just about everybody. So let's read this section from the letter right now, and I quote, The proceedings of the American Congress give great satisfaction to all the friends of civil and religious liberty in this country. Every honest and independent man must applaud the Congress for the wisdom of their proceedings, their unanimity, and manly firmness, and the resolutions which they have passed which are agreeable to reason and justice. The effects of these resolutions are already experienced in this country. The stoppage of our American commerce, the decline of the manufacturers, and consequently a heavy drawback upon the revenue. These are alarming circumstances. Poverty will soon stare us in the face, and unless the grievances are redressed, who knows? But that a civil war may close the scene. But I hope your proceedings will be a means of awakening us out of our lethargy and shew us a sight of our danger. And upon seeing that danger, we may be led to a speedy remedy. I make no doubt you will have that firmness, unanimity, and virtue of perseverance as to secure your invaluable rights and hand them down to posterity invalid. I could write you many pages, but I am in haste as the bag is just going away. You have the hearts of the English nation, and Mr. Robinson in his present publication says, You do us wrong in not thinking so. And I thoroughly agree with this author in what he affirms, that there would not be hurt the hair of the head of an American were it to be voted by all our country, wishing you fortitude under your present severe trials, and that every good may result to North America from the proceedings of the Congress. I am, dear sir, your affectionate friend and most obedient servant. End quote. You know, these are some pretty good sentiments from London. Now, now for those of you who uh, didn't read letters like this or, or get history like this from your history class in high school, which would be everybody on the planet, by the way, because nobody talks about letters like this in their history class in high school. And if you did, believe me, I want to hear from you. Leave a review on the podcast and let me know. Well, you know what? In this high school in 1975, we read the, we read a letter just like that from somebody in London. Okay, yeah, I want to hear about it. Uh, something tells me there's not going to be a single review on the podcast that says anything like that. Because again, you don't get this history anywhere else. Where are you going to find this stuff uh, besides this podcast? But it's so important, isn't it? Roman, for gosh sakes, why is this letter so important? Why do we need to know about this guy from London in 1775 who's writing this letter? Well, I'll tell you why. Again, people try to paint the Founding Fathers as being a bunch of privileged elitists, didn't want to pay their taxes, trigger-happy, firing from the hip, rebellious, hated the government, blah, blah, blah. Well, here we have a man who's not a founding father, by the way, Edward Dilley. I would not classify this man as a founding father. In a previous episode, 
I, I believe, titled something to the effect of who were the Founding Fathers. So go back and listen to that one. I, I define who the Founding Fathers are. And it's not just the people who are in the Congress. It, there were thousands and thousands of Founding Fathers, thousands of them, serving on the front line in combat, civilians supporting the cause of the revolution. Frankly speaking, men who didn't make it past the first day of the war. They picked up their rifle, they said goodbye to their wife and children, they left the house, and they never came back. Edward Dilley's not one of those guys. But I'll tell you what, it's good to have a perspective of somebody who's not a founding father talking about how righteous and just and virtuous what the Congress was trying to do was. I mean, listen to this, quote, Every honest and independent man must applaud the Congress for the wisdom of their proceedings, their unanimity, and manly firmness, and the resolutions which they have passed, end quote. That's coming from a man in London, and Edward Dilley is not the only one. Clearly, he makes mention of that here in this letter. He's not hes not like, oh, well, Roman, there's, uh, there's one crazy person in London who supports those elitist, privileged rabble-rousers over there in the colonies, but that's about it. Not according to this guy. Quote, You have the hearts of the English nation, and Mr. Robinson in his present publication says, You do us wrong in not thinking so. And I thoroughly agree with this author in what he affirms, that there would not be hurt the hair of the head of an American were it to be voted by all our country, end quote. This is strong support coming from London. Well, how on earth, Roman, did, did they declare war on the colonists then? Because they're led by a tyrant king. He gets basically a small portion of his country to declare war on the other portion of his country. And again, let, let's, let's readdress that particular circumstance right now. Quote, Poverty will soon stare us in the face, and unless the grievances are redressed, who knows, but that a civil war may close the scene. End quote. People often forget that this is a civil war. They forget because of their perspective, and they get myopic about it. Because the United States won their in its independence, they think of it as an independent nation as soon as 1776, at the very least, happened. Maybe even before that. But it wasn't. This was, we were a part of the British Empire. The United States today continues to be, and always will be, an offshoot of the British Empire. And I, I've talked—I I don't know if I ever talked about that at length. I did on—I did on my Patreon podcast, which again is still under reconstruction, by the way. I haven't—I haven't set that thing back up yet. But and of course, I barely have time to do this podcast, so I'll probably not be getting back to that one anytime soon. But you know, the United States has all these cousins around the world that are also offshoots of the British Empire. India is one of those, and so on and so forth. This was a civil war. This was a country going to war with itself, and countries do that on occasion. Tyrants are always the ones that start that, for the most part. For the most part. There's probably a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, tyrants are usually the ones that declare war on their own country. Why? Because they're tyrants, that's why. They usually end up really liking one part of the country and really hating the other. And because they're tyrants and they have to get their way... They stomp their feet like little children, and they demand that everybody just comply. And when they don't, they start shooting, eventually. It always ends that way. It ends with people getting shot, people getting locked up, put in the gulag, put in the concentration camps, and put wherever. Or just exterminated. Thank Ukraine in the 1930s, right? Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Is this ringing a bell? Or I've talked about Ivan the Terrible before with the Oprichniki. He sent his military out into the countryside to massacre whole swaths of people. That's why they called him Ivan the Terrible. That's one reason. There was a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. So anytime somebody starts getting tyrannical, 
and they start issuing their dictates, their mandates, their executive orders, and all the rest of it that start to interrupt the liberty and freedom of people, and they start demanding compliance, eventually what's going to happen is they're going to demand compliance at the barrel of a gun. And if you don't comply, you're in trouble. Yeah, but the and the founding fathers knew that, of course. You know, and the founding fathers were ready for the trouble. We've read this. We've read. Uh, we've read this on numerous podcast episodes recently, and also several months ago. The founding fathers were ready for the fight if it was to come. They didn't want the fight, but they were ready for it if it came. And Mr. Dilly in London is pointing out here in this letter. He's very concerned that that's how this is going to end. Why? Because Mr. Dilly is an educated man. He studied his history. He knows how these things end. He knows what happens when the tyrant starts to stomp his feet like a little child and try to try to demand that people comply. When all reason and all logic says that compliance is stupid. Just comply. Just comply. Just do what he says. Do what he says and we can get out of this. This'll all be over as soon as you do what the dictator says. Over and over and over again throughout history. You think this is new? You think this is new for 2021, 2022? It's not. This has been done before, going back thousands of years. Probably 5,000 years ago, there was some some tin-pot dictator shaking his little fist, demanding that people comply. And when they didn't, he brought out the sword, and he started cutting people's heads off. These people are dangerous. And that's, that's why I mentioned again a few episodes ago, Julius Caesar, why did they stab that man to death on the Senate floor? Because they knew how dangerous he was. He was a terrible, terrible human being, a wannabe despot, a wannabe king, and they stabbed him to death on the Senate floor, and rightfully so. He deserved to die because he was dangerous. The things that that man was going to do, the people in the Senate saw it coming a mile down the road because they'd read about it before. Because this goes back to time and memorial. Make no mistake, folks, these are dangerous, dangerous people, these tyrants. They always sound really fun and exciting in the beginning, too, don't they, by the way? Making all their empty promises. Like King George III, I'm sure, had his own version of this. But again, Mr. Dilly saw right through that crap. And John Adams and his people saw right through that crap. And thank goodness, these, these guys were educated men. Thank goodness, because if they weren't educated men, they wouldn't have been able to see right through it. And they would have fallen for it. And there would be no United States of America. And all of the great invention that came out of the United States of America. The industriousness, the hard work, never would have happened. Not the way that it did, anyway. Because there would have been oppression in droves. And it's not like oppression ended with the Revolutionary War. It didn't. I mentioned that uh, previous episode, I believe. Nothing's perfect in the beginning. Well, nothing's perfect ever. But certainly nothing's perfect in the beginning. Takes a little while to work out the kinks and to smooth out the rough edges. Tyranny likes to hide in the dark corners. And it's hard to, it's hard to chase it out, you know? It's like, a, it's, like, it's like rats in the attic. You gotta chase them out of there. So anyway, let's, let's go to Mr. Adams. And let's read what he has to say... Uh, back to our friend Mr. Dilly. Now that we've been sufficiently inspired by the warm sentiments of our friend from London, let's go to our friend John Adams, live from 1775. This is going to be a letter written from John Adams to a friend in London on February 10th of 1775. And the friend in London was believed to be Mr. Dilly. It was either that or Mrs. Macaulay, or both. And looking at this letter, this might end up being a two-parter. This letter is actually quite lengthy, and my thoughts on this, I wrote down, I, I don't always write down a whole bunch of notes, but I, boy, I did for this letter. Uh, this one, this letter really inspired me. So I hope it inspires you, by the way, as we read through this. Uh, I, hope, I hope this letter captures your imagination, your attention. Quote, The account you give of an overbearing influence in the house, and the want of feeling and spirit out of it, is of a very serious and melancholy kind. Americans are very sensible that such accounts are true and expect to fall a sacrifice to the knavery in the cabinet and the folly out of it, unless preserved by their own virtue, their frugality, 
or valor, or both, end quote. Boy, there's that word again. That's the second time we've heard that word so far on this podcast episode, valor, or excuse me, virtue. Just keeps coming up, doesn't it? We can't get away from it. I've I've said a a number of things on this podcast, things that you need to pay attention to, but you can't really understand where the Founding Fathers are coming from or where Mr. Dilly is coming from without understanding the virtue that they're talking about. Part of studying history is, again, understanding who these people were in their time and what these sentiments mean in their time, not our time, in their time. In their time, they meant something very specific by virtue. And it may not be the same thing that you think of when you think of virtue. So if you want to understand what the Founding Fathers were talking about most of the time, you have to understand what they felt was virtue. If you want to dive deep and really understand. now, And that's what partly what I'm here for. Uh, as the leader of our study group here, my job, in part, is to describe to you at some length what that means to them. And I've done that before, uh, so I'm not going to go back into it now. I just wanted to point that out again to those folks who are brand new to the podcast, perhaps, just listen to this episode as their first episode. There are episodes in the past where I talk about this at some length, so just go back in the library and you'll find it. He mentions this term, knavery. Quote, Americans are very sensible that such accounts are true and expect to fall a sacrifice to the knavery in the cabinet, end quote. A knave was generally known to be an untrustworthy or a corrupt individual, by the way. And listen to the language here. He uses language that could be written today. I mean, if you didn't know that this letter was from 1775, you would probably think this letter was written today. Let me read this section to you again very quickly, and I'll stress the words that you should be paying attention to. Quote, The account you give of an overbearing influence in the house and the want of feeling and spirit out of it is of a very serious and melancholy kind. Americans are very sensible that such accounts are true and expect to fall a sacrifice to the knavery in the cabinet and the folly out of it, unless preserved by their own virtue, their frugality, or valor, or both, end quote. So he talks about the House, House of Commons, most likely, and the Cabinet. What's that sound like? Sounds like the House of Representatives and the Cabinet of the Executive Branch of the United States, doesn't it? That's not what he's talking about. Don't get me wrong. And the knavery of the Cabinet? I mean, in any, any, any administration in American history recently, like in the last 60 years, have we had situations where... We've had an overbearing influence in the House, quote, overbearing influence in the House, end quote, or, quote, the knavery in the cabinet, end quote. We had situations like that in the United States in the recent past? Yes, we have. I've certainly noticed it. It's amazing how history repeats itself, isn't it? I mean, we've talked about that before, and I like to point out moments in these letters where history repeats itself just so people can have an example of it. Because we, we say that on this podcast, and historians have been saying that probably since there was a, the, the first historian. It's probably the first words out of the first historian's mouth. History repeats itself. That was probably said 10,000 years ago. But, you know, what's an example of that? Some people, some people always ask the question, Roman, for Pete's sake, you keep saying that history repeats itself, but could you please give us an example of how history actually repeats itself because I don't see it. Well, right there. The overbearing influence in the house, the knavery in the cabinet. You basically have a, 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 a an educated individual lamenting this, this kind of reprehensible quality in the legislature and in the government and the central power. Isn't that interesting? People still do that today. Over and over and over again. It, it never ends. It just never ends. This this kind of, uh, this, persist, this persistent um, contention between educated people in society and the government that's trying to mess with them and ruin their lives. It just keeps going. It, it, just, it goes around and round and round forever throughout history. It never ends. Let us continue. 
Quote, Shorter parliaments, a more equitable representation, the abolition of taxes and the payment of the debt, the reduction of placement and pensioners, the annihilation of bribery and corruption, the reformation of luxury, dissipation and effeminacy, the disbanding the army, are all necessary to restore your country to a free government and to a safe, honorable, and happy life. But is this practicable? Is there a resource in human nature for hope of such miraculous change? Is there one example of it in history or experience? A nation is easily corrupted, but not so easily reformed. The present reign may be that of Augustus, but upon my honor I expect twelve Caesars will succeed it. What is to become of America if they should? Ought she not think in time and prepare for the worst? End quote. Oh. My. Gosh. Mr. Adams. Blows my mind. This man is a genius. I mean, did you listen to the words? Did you hear all of that? If you didn't, stop the podcast right now and back it up a minute or two and listen to that again. If that doesn't get your heart rate moving just a little bit faster... If that doesn't inspire your spirit to the genius of this man's sentiments, I really have to wonder about you. Or maybe it's just me, because I'm a history enthusiast. But in that one paragraph, this man has articulated the situation, resolution, and been quite prophetic in what it was that he saw and what was happening at the time. And remember all of our, remember our discussions about Julius Caesar in recent episodes, quote, a nation is easily corrupted, but not so easily reformed. The present reign may be that of Augustus, but upon my honor, I expect twelve Caesars will succeed it, end quote. Augustus, often framed as being this marvelous human being, Augustus actually was a terrible, reprehensible dictator and a man who should have been snuffed out in his youth, in my humble opinion. Yes, I said it. Oh my gosh, Roman, did you did you hear what Roman just said? He said that Augustus should have been snuffed out in his youth. Oh my gosh, how dare he? It's the truth. The man was an evil dictator. And I know people think of it as, you know, this uh, Pax Romana, Golden Age, Augustus, blah, blah, blah. That's all just a pile of crap. It was all laying the foundation for what was to come. The Caligulas and the Neros and all the rest of them. Evil. Every single one of them. Taking the rights away from the people, ending the Republic stamping out the rights and the virtue of the republic and turning it into just another dictator state but he's say but he's saying that you know this may be augustus this may be perceived to be a good thing now some kind of pax romana but he expects 12 caesars will succeed it in other words you know 12 enemies of any kind of freedom or liberty something terrible is coming down the road something terrible is coming you know, I do think sometimes that those who refuse to study the Founding Fathers, and certain others like them, really do condemn themselves to a life of perpetual ignorance. I mean, do you hear what he just said? I mean, do you really hear it? And do you feel the wisdom in the words that this man is trying to convey? Because I do. It's very fascinating. And then there's this line up at the top where he begins his sentiments, quote, Shorter parliaments are a more equitable res representation, end quote. So shorter parliaments, why is that? For example, you know, why is the House of Representatives in the United States a two-year cycle and the Senate a six-year cycle? Or more specifically, roughly a third of the Senate is re-elected every two years. Only a third. Two-thirds is not, if you pay attention to these things as they go by. Why is that? Why is the Senate every six years instead of just doing the whole shebang every two years? Because he says here, quote, shorter parliaments are a more equitable res representation, end quote. Why didn't they do the Senate every two years just like they do the House? 
And there's a reason for it, folks. We're going to be talking about that when we get to the Constitution of the United States. That is probably about 500 episodes into the future. I'm, I'm exaggerating probably a little bit, It's but it's a long way off. Keep in mind, again, we're almost to episode 50, and we haven't even left 1774 to 75 yet, and that's where we started. The first year we covered here was 1774. And we're not even close to leaving, by the way, in case you're curious. Somebody out there is saying, gosh, Roman, for crying out loud, when are we going to leave 1774 to 1775? Is it going to be like next week or something? No. You'll be lucky to see that by the end of the summer, probably. I, I don't know. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be a little while. Payment of debt. Reduction of pensioners. Let's let's read this section again. This is this is very fascinating. People are. This is the kind of section that really gets certain people in the United States really angry, which is why I like it. Of course, they're probably not going to be listening to this podcast because people like that, that rarely listen to these podcasts. But maybe maybe we'll get lucky and we'll get one or two of them in here and we'll get them all fired up. And and if you if you do leave a review on the podcast, tell me I'm a terrible human being, and tell me why you disagree with Mr. Adams here. But anyway, let's continue. Quote, The abolition of taxes and the payment of the debt, the reduction of placement and pensioners, the annihilation of bribery and corruption, the reformation of luxury, dissipation, and effeminacy, the disbanding the army, are all necessary to restore your country to a free government and to a safe, honorable, and happy life. End quote. Wow. Again, the genius of John Adams strikes once more. And by the way, the genius of this man knows no end, except when he finally died. That's when the genius, I guess, ended. But good news, we, we still have the letters from the genius man himself. Thank goodness. I don't know what we would do without these letters. I don't know how people go through their life without reading a John Adams letter at least a time or two, because I, I, I rely on this. I, I depend on this. I lean so heavily on this man's letters in my life. I don't know what I would do without him. And if you feel the same, I want to hear from you. Leave a review on the podcast and tell me how you feel about these letters. Tell me if you feel like you you really rely on the letters of a John Adams, or maybe it was a George Washington, some of the ones we read from episodes past. I'd be curious to know. But he talks about the payment of the debt. Now, why in the world is that important? You know, one of the founding fathers said, and I forget which one it was, so do forgive me, I don't have an accurate quotation, and I'm paraphrasing ever so slightly, but they said a public debt is a public curse. I forget who said that. But I believe it to be one of the founding fathers, as I recollect from my, my studies. This is from many years ago, which is why I don't remember who said it. A public debt is a public curse. In the United States today, and so, some of you folks listening internationally, I want, you to, I want you to make sure you're sitting down when you hear this number. Please please take a moment. I'll wait. Sit down hold, and grab onto the chair, because if you don't, you're likely to fall down, and I want you to be safe. If you're driving a car, you might want to pull over to the side of the road. Again, if you're outside the United States. Inside the United States, you're probably going to yawn when I say this and just go, uh, 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 so what? But anyway, anybody outside the United States is going to fall over when they hear this, so I want you to prepare yourselves. The United States today is over $30 trillion in debt. $30 trillion. Now, some of you folks out there are going to be like, what the heck is a trillion? Well, it's a thousand billion. It's a lot of things, but I'll articulate it to you like this. If you were to put it in terms of seconds, what is a million seconds? A million seconds is approximately 12 days. Do the math on that. You'll probably come up with exactly that number. Pretty close to it. It's about 12 days. Round it off. It's about 12 days. Okay. How much is a billion seconds, which is a thousand million, right? That's one step up the ladder from a million. What's a billion seconds? Well, a billion seconds is 32 years. I'm not making that up. Okay. Well, what about a trillion seconds? A trillion seconds has got to be a lot, right? Yeah. Well, if it's a thousand mil, if it's a thousand billion and a billion seconds is 32 years, well, then that means that a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Let me put that in perspective for you. 12 days ago, I can remember what I had for breakfast. 32 years ago, I was learning how to read and write. 32,000 years ago, Neanderthal was walking the earth. 
Does that put it in perspective for you? And the U.S. government, the American people, are $30 trillion in debt. Oh, and that doesn't even count the big number. I'm an accountant by training. I've said that before. You know, in accountant, we have this, um, we have this concept of uh, accrued liabilities, you know, payables in the future. You know, basically, you know, payables that you have to recognize on your books. It's not cash accounting, it's accrual accounting. And you start to, you start to imagine this number of, well, what's our, what's our projected debt on certain things, like the liabilities that we have projected out into the future? On the books right now, what we have is somewhere between 250 and 300 trillion dollars. That's a real number. 250 to 300 trillion dollars. Now, John Adams says, pay the debt. And he doesn't mean, I don't think, in the context that he says this, I don't think he means continue to make the monthly payments on the debt. I think he means pay it, as in get rid of it. The last time, by the way, the United States paid its national debt off entirely was during the Jackson administration. Andrew Jackson was famous for that. He was infamous for other reasons, too. Not so good, but he was definitely famous for paying off the national debt. Well, the American people paid off the debt. He was just the one who helped facilitate it. So he was very much trying to live up to what John Adams was talking about. This has been done before. And a lot of people will say, you know, Roman, you can't pay $30 trillion in debt. As an accountant, I can tell you that yes, you can. Oh my gosh, did Roman just say that we can actually pay off the $30 trillion in national debt? Yep, that's exactly what I just said. You just have to, you just have to actually set about doing it. And would John Adams want us to do that? I would say, yeah. Probably. And the rest of what he wants to talk about here has a lot to do with that. Quote, the payment of the debt, the reduction of placement and pensioners, end quote. What's a placement? What's a pensioner? A placement, as I understand it in this context, is really a, you know, somebody who has a, an appointed office of sorts, and is somebody who's basically on the public dole, and probably doesn't need to be. They don't really serve a function, perhaps. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. There's a lot of those uh, jobs, those appointed jobs in the government, that are really just no-show jobs at the end of the day. And honestly, the, the vice president of the United States might as well be a no-show job at this point. Uh, when was the last time a, pre a vice president of the United States actually did their job? I can't remember. I mean, unless there's a tie break in the Senate, how often does the president of the Senate actually go to the Senate and do their job? Does anybody ever think about that? Roman, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? The vice president doesn't do their job. I see him on TV all the time, wandering around, making speeches and doing stupid crap like... Yeah, exactly. Did you know that the title of the vice president of the United States, the secondary title, is president of the Senate? Do you know what that means? Well, good news, I'm going to tell you. That means that they are supposed to walk their happy rear end down to the Senate building every day, and they're supposed to sit there, and they're supposed to preside over the Senate. That's their job. They're supposed to be president of the Senate. Now, usually what they end up doing, if you've ever watched C-SPAN, you understand this. What they usually do is they get some they get some guy from the Senate, a senator, to basically act as de facto president of the Senate and sit and sit up there and preside over the Senate. But they're not the actual president of the Senate. They're just sitting they're just st standing in the place of the president. Why? Because the president because it's beneath the vice president to do that. It's beneath them. They can't be expected to go down to the Senate and actually do their job. How dare you? How dare you actually think that the vice president should lower themselves, should stoop so low as to go down there like some middling individual and actually do their job like the work? What, 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 what do you think they are? Like the working people of the United States or something? Oh, please. This is like a, a this is like a Marie Antoinette situation. Let them eat cake. And this isn't this isn't me being partisan, by the way. This is every vice president in my lifetime and beyond that refuses to do their job. They won't do it because it's beneath them. Instead, they go to meetings, they give a few speeches here and there, they like to try to run a, a fiat dictatorship out of the White House, kind of behind the president's back in some cases. Yes, I said it. And But that, that's what they do. 
instead of doing their job. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of people out there who have policy-type people. If any policy person from Washington, D.C. ever listens to this podcast, God forbid, because it's going to be like nails on a chalkboard to those people. Those people are going to, they're probably going to have a brain aneurysm if they try to listen to this podcast, but they're going to be like, oh my gosh, this Roman guy, he doesn't understand how the real world works. He doesn't understand how important the vice president is to making these speeches and wandering around running a fiat dictatorship. Those are all very important things. I'm sure they are. But you know what else is important? Doing your freaking job. The American people do it all every day. America's doctors, nurses, truck drivers, factory workers, they get up, they go to work, and they do their job. Vice President of the United States, not so much. And I'm not, again, I'm not just talking about the current Vice President of the United States. I'm talking about every single one that has been around in my entire life and beyond. That's what. That's partly what he's talking about here. Those kind of people. Now, the pensioners, that's another thing altogether. Now, what the heck is a pensioner? What does that mean? We don't use that term very often in the United States anymore. It's still used in England, though, by the way, in Britain. A pensioner is basically a retired person. Now, why is this important? Well, pensioners are often... Pensioners often get a pension, right? Now, we're not talking about a private pension a lot of times. When we're talking about pensioners in terms of public policy, we're talking about what we in the United States would call a social security recipient. In the UK, in Great Britain, they would call it a pensioner. As best as I understand it. I've never been to the UK, but I do listen to those people talk every once in a while. I listen to their news programs a little bit, and I listen to their politicians talk. And the way I understand it, my takeaway from it, is our Social Security recipient is like their pensioner. Now, if somebody from the UK wants to set me straight, leave a review on the podcast and say, Roman, for crying out loud, man, you got this all wrong. That's not what a pensioner is. A pensioner is this, that, and the other thing. Okay, thank you. But I think I have this right. So he he believes in the reduction of pensioners. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. You mean you want to kick people off Social Security, John Adams? Is that what you want? Well, he's not around to tell us exactly if he wants to kick people off Social Security. But, you know, I have my own personal thoughts about Social Security. None of them are good, by the way. But I think there there's something to be said for trying to detach pensioners, a.k.a. Social Security recipients, as we would call them, from the uh, the public system. I think there's something to be said for that. I'm not going to get into public policy exactly, but I'm just trying to... I'm trying to translate what John Adams is saying here, just so you understand what he means when he says this, because some people out there in the United States have never heard that term pensioner, not in this context. They, they might understand what a pension is, because in the United States, there are still people who have a pension, but that better than nine times out of ten, that's a private pension that they paid into, allegedly, through some kind of a union job, perhaps, or maybe it was a corporate job. And that's part of the retirement plan, et cetera, et cetera. And if it's private, frankly speaking, I don't have a problem with it. Now, I don't like pensions generally. As an accountant, uh, as somebody who's been trained in accounting it anyway, I don't like pensions because you don't own them. Not necessarily. Pensions typically go away when you die. Whereas if you have an investment account like what we would call in the United States a 401k or some kind of other related uh, program, you own that. That's yours. You own it. It's an asset. And you get to keep it. And if you die, somebody inherits it. Or you can leave it to somebody, whatever, what have you. That's how that works. You see the difference? But anyway, what John Adams is talking about is public pension. He's not talking about private. I doubt seriously they had private pensions back when John Adams was alive. I believe that to be a more modern creation than that. But uh, on the public dole, yeah, apparently even back in John Adams' time, you had some of that going on. And then he continues, quote, The annihilation of bribery and corruption, the reformation of luxury, end quote. Mm, Boy. The annihilation of bribery and corruption. Boy, that would make everybody in Washington, D.C. very angry, wouldn't it? I mean, this is a problem in John Adams' time, clearly, because he mentions it. It's a problem every time you have government. Corruption and bribery is a huge problem. In the United States today, and this is kind of, again, further education for those folks outside the United States of America. If, you, if you've actually managed to collect yourself up from off of the floor after hearing that we're $30 trillion in debt, here's another one for you. 
In the United States today, we don't call bribery and corruption bribery and corruption. We call it lobbyists and political contributions. There you go. So we have changed the words bribery and corruption to lobbyists and political contributions. So John Adams is basically saying, stop it. So why do we keep on doing it? This is one of the founding fathers telling you, stop it. That's why I say if anybody involved in public policy in Washington, D.C., if they ever listen to this podcast, it's going to be like nails on a chalkboard. This is their bread and butter. Bribery and corruption? That is their bread and butter, ladies and gentlemen. Does anybody doubt me on that? There's, there's bound to be somebody out there. Oh, Roman, for Pete's sake, you're such a cynic. How dare you say that the government, their bread and butter is bribery and corruption? Well, you know, since I was born, there has always been these references to K Street in Washington, D.C. Has anybody heard that reference before? And what is that a reference to? It's a reference to all the lobbyists in Washington, D.C., right? And why is that such an infamous thing, K Street in Washington, D.C.? Why is that so infamous? Because it's bribery and corruption, that's why. If it was business as usual, they pr nobody would probably say anything about it. Of course, it is business and usual in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is like a Twilight Zone episode in a great many ways. It, they don't, it's not like the real world. If you ever wonder why, you're, why your elected representatives are so detached from reality, it's because they don't live in the real world. That's probably why. But anyway, John Adams is really digging into this annihilation of bribery and corruption. He believes this to be very necessary to the, to the reformation of the government, to what he calls, quote, to restore your country to a free government and to a safe honorable, and happy life, end quote. He thinks this is necessary for a safe, honorable, and happy life. Because while you're working hard and while you're sleeping at night, the, the bribery and corruption is hard at work, trying to undo everything it is that you do when you go to work. I'm not making that up. And that was the truth in John Adams' time as well. When this man got up and went to work in the morning, everything that he was trying to, do, to accomplish, everything he was trying to build for his children and grandchildren was being undone by bribery and corruption. He knew that. That's why he's talking about it. And he says, annihilate it. He doesn't say, reduce it. We need to reduce it. We need to, we need to just kind of slim it down a little bit. We need to have a Weight Watchers plan for bribery and corruption. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, annihilate it from the face of the planet. Isn't that interesting? So why do we tolerate it today? I don't know. Why does any country tolerate this kind of stuff? I don't know. Heck, the United States not only tolerates it, we vote for it. Not all of us, of course. I certainly don't. But a lot of people do. They put their they put their stamp of approval on it, and they send those people back up there, and they say, oh, I tell you what, you go back there and you do your bribery and corruption. As long as you're on my side, you can bribe and corrupt your way all you want to. Okay. You know what you're going to get for that? I'll tell you exactly what you're going to get when you do that. Quote, The present reign may be that of Augustus, but upon my honor, I expect 12 Caesars will succeed it. End quote. That's what you're going to get. If you're ready for Caligula and Nero, saddle it up. Because that's what you're doing. Congratulations. Quote, the reformation of luxury, end quote. What in the world does he mean by that? You know, that, that, that takes a little bit of um, inference on my part. Luxury. He talked a little bit about this, and I believe it was John Adams in a previous letter that we wrote about what was going on in Boston during this particular time period. He talked about the various debaucheries and behaviors uh, that, that were going on in Boston at this time, brought on by a combination of the military and British agents and uh, officers. I, I, be I believe this to be applicable to a, a love of luxury. Think of it like a love of money. 
And I, I've mentioned this to you folks before, like in the common context. Again, I have to translate what he's saying. If you ever wonder why I keep bouncing back and forth between the founding and today when I'm talking about all this, is I'm trying to translate what John Adams is talking about so that you know that, no, for number one, know what the heck it was that he was actually talking about. And number two, understand that these problems are still problems today. They weren't solved with the revolution of the United States because these are human problems and there are still people alive in the United States. And as long as there are, this is going to be a problem. But what I believe this to mean is something along the lines of, like, today, when you see politicians and the number of houses that they have, there's a great many politicians, these are, these are your Washington, D.C.-type politicians that have several houses, and they're, sometimes they're not who you would expect. There's a lot of people who in Washington, D.C. who talk like they live in a double-wide trailer and live on a steady diet of government cheese and ramen noodles, but in reality, they've got multiple very large and luxurious houses. They talk one thing, and they do another. And that's the classic definition of a hypocrite, by the way. They're also a bunch of liars, too, by the way. It's this kind of government sponsorship of luxury. And how do they get that, of course? Quote, bribery and corruption, end quote. That's why he kind of lumps these things together. Quote, the annihilation of bribery and corruption, the reformation of luxury, end quote. Those things are lumped together because they go hand in hand. Hand in hand. And then he says, quote, dissipation and effeminacy, end quote. Dissipation is like a kind of degenerate behavior. Now, what would, what, would, what would constitute the degenerate behavior that he was talking about? He, we actually talked about that again in a previous episode. I forget which episode it was. I believe it was one of the early John Adams episodes uh, that we did on this podcast where he describes what was going on in Boston at the time. And he described, he described the dissipation, as he calls it. Effeminacy is like a kind of weakness. Uh, at this particular point in time, that's the term that would have been used to apply towards, you know, somebody who was not... Well, I'll give you a perfect example of that. John, or Edward Dilley, rather, he said, he, he mentioned it... Not that, but he mentioned the exact opposite in his letter, and I'll quote it to you again. Talking about the United States Congress, the General Congress in the colonies, I guess I should say, at the time, the Continental Congress, quote, their unanimity and manly firmness, end quote. Manly firmness. That's a kind of, that's being, that's, a, that's like being resolute, determined, focused, steadfast. Effeminacy is the exact opposite of that. It's like a kind of weakness. A, a kind of a, the feeble nature of some aspects of government. D think dithering and confusion. Instead, instead of being resolute and determined, uh, it would be like a government body, you know, wandering about with dithering and confusion. Same kind of thing. And weakness, generally speaking. You know, and governments are really weird that way. They tend to be, they tend to be very determined at oppressing their own people. Tyr tyrannies, that is. Not, not government generally. But tyr I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about the government of the British Empire. They tend to be very determined in oppressing their own people, but not so determined in defending the country from outside. Because they're so focused on what's going on inside the country, they can't possibly defend themselves from enemies outside the country. An interesting example of that might be the French Revolution. When Napoleon was a, was a young man, and before he became de facto emperor of France, he was in the military, you know, bouncing around trying to defend France from outside enemies, and he was having a heck of a time doing it, despite his military genius, and he was a military genius, I truly believe that. And the reason why is because the French people were distracted, the French government was distracted, it was at war with itself. They had declared war on the French people. Thus, the guillotine and the murders and the, the, all the rest, all the various other things that were going on at the time. When governments turn against their own people like that, they get distracted. And they're very, very determined to murder and kill their own people, but they're very weak and feeble when it comes to attacking their enemies abroad. If you can, if you can conceptualize that, that's basically what, why you have this weird contrast between, you know, this weird tyrannical agenda on the one hand, 
that's really bent towards destroying its own people, but so weak when it comes to defending itself from outside. This actually happened during Ivan the Terrible's reign, by the way. Uh, if I remember correctly, Ivan the Terrible had worked so hard at massacring his own people, they were attacked, I think by, I think, I believe it was their traditional enemy, the Tatars, once again, and it, it became a problem for them, as I recall. But anyway, because because Ivan the Terrible had weakened his country. And and Stalin did it again with the purges. People remember that. The big purges that Stalin did right before World War II, hollowing out his military and making it very vulnerable to the Germans. There were 20 million people or so that got killed in the Soviet Union during World War II. How did that happen? Because the Soviet Union was so strong and determined to oppress and murder its own people, it was weak and feeble when it came to defending its borders. Over and over and over again, history repeats itself, doesn't it? Do you see anything like that going on today in the world? I do. You gotta be careful about this kind of thing. And that's that's that kind of plays into what John Adams is talking about here. He's talking about this tyrannical government on the one hand that has a strong fist when it comes to oppressing the colonists. But it's so but there's a there's a kind of weakness that's at play here as well. And it's not so much that the British Empire was weak as it pertained to its enemies. It was actually fairly strong at this particular period of time, especially against France. But the John Adams must have seen some flickers and glimmers of that going on at this particular time. And I've, I've certainly seen it throughout history. When I study history, I see it all the time. Whenever a tyranny pops up and it starts oppressing its people, that weakness really presents itself. Not all the time, but a lot of the time it does. Like I said, Ivan the Terrible, Stalin, etc., etc., it happens again and again and again. And again. Like today. Very fascinating. And here we are again, quote, the disbanding the army, end quote. He wants to disband the army. Why? Well, we've talked about that. You have the answer to that already because we've talked at length about it. And I'm not going to go on about it again. I'm just going to mention it because it's right here in front of us. The Founding Fathers were very suspicious of a standing army, as always. So am I. And so should you be. If you're not suspicious of a standing army, by the way, you really need to, th you really need to stop and ask yourself, why were the Founding Fathers so suspicious of a standing army? And should I be? Should I be suspicious of a standing army? And in my humble opinion, yes, you should. Very very suspicious. I'm not saying disband the army, by the way, but I'm saying be very suspicious of them. It's dangerous. Now, as long as that, as long as that danger is channeled in the right direction, it's fine. In other words, outside the country, it's fine. But you got to be very careful because that, that danger can be turned inward. Again, think Ivan the Terrible, the Oprichniki that we've talked about before. That, that was Ivan, that was a Russian dictator turning his military inward to murder his own people. And he wasn't the first to do it. He won't be the last. He wasn't the last. It happened after that, too. In between then and today, and it's going to happen again in the future. Probably next year or the year after that, it's going to happen. Just try to make sure it doesn't happen here in the United States, for crying out loud. And for those of you around the world, keep an eye on it. You don't want it to happen to yourselves either. And I don't want it to happen to you either. That's why a well-regulated militia is so important, by the way. If you ever wanted to know again why... I talk so much about a well-regulated militia. It's because the, the, one of the reasons why the Founding Fathers believed that to be so important is because a standing army is so dangerous. You don't want to keep a standing army around in such a way that it's a danger to the people of the country. So how does the country defend itself without a standing army or with a limited standing army? The answer is, is you train the people to defend themselves and to defend the country. How do you do that? Well-regulated militia. Simple. Classic. That's, that's, that's how you have a free country. That's why it's important. This isn't this isn't a game. This is reality. Now we get into some very interesting stuff again here towards the end of this uh, paragraph. As he's talking about what needs to be done for a quote safe, honorable, and happy life end quote and a free government. By the way, I missed that part. 
But uh, as he's talking about what's needed for a free government and uh, a safe and honorable and happy life, what are the odds that that's actually going to happen? Quote, but is this practicable? Is there a resource in human nature for hope of such a miraculous change? Is there one example of it in history or experience? A nation is easily corrupted, but not so easily reformed. End quote. You know what this reminds me of? There's that ancient Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. This is like an ancient American curse, uh, written up by John Adams. Quote, is there one example of it in history or experience? A nation is easily corrupted, but not so easily reformed. End quote. It's so daunting, isn't it? You know why so many people bury their head in the sand and pretend that problems don't exist? Because if problems exist, that means that they have to do something to fix it. And we can't have that now, can we? Really hard to fix problems when people are binge-watching Netflix. I'm just saying. So he says a nation is easily corrupted. So if you, if you think that it's impossible for the United States to be corrupted, John Adams just told you you're full of crap. Isn't that nice? I mean, for those of you out there, and again, most of you folks listening to this podcast are not going to fall into that category, I know. But isn't it nice to be told from, by somebody who lived 250 years ago that you're full of crap? A man who knew what he was talking about? Doesn't happen every day, does it? From beyond the grave, as a guest on this podcast, if you think the United States of America, the government of the United States, cannot be corrupted, John Adams is telling you, you are full of crap. You're a delusional maniac, and you probably ought to return to your books and study history a little bit more, so that you can be anything other than a feckless individual. What does feckless mean? Useless. And yes, I, people who study history, I've said this before, I think, in some regard, people who don't study history are feckless individuals when it comes to solving big problems like this, societal problems. They're either feckless or they're just a danger to society because they end up flailing around trying to solve problems and they have no idea what they're doing. What I do to avoid being a feckless individual or a destructive and dangerous individual is I read the words of the people who solved the problem before I was ever born. And that would be John Adams, amongst others. A nation is easily corrupted, but not so easily reformed. So he's basically saying, once this corruption sets in, good luck getting it out. It's going to dig in. It is going to dig in. It's going to entrench itself. And it's going to be it's going to be like trying to move the battle lines in World War One. Good luck with that. If you if you have a mental image in your head of the trenches in World War One and the the razor wire, the barbed wire, and all the rest of it, those those bunkers that they kind of dug into the ground. That's corruption and bribery, like what he's talking about earlier in this paragraph. That's how it digs in to society. And when you go in to try to dig that out, it's going to fight back. It's going to fight back hard, and it is going to try to destroy you. And I know this is a sobering statement to make, and it's very harsh, and it's very real. But that's what this podcast is. There's a reason why I call it Real History. And what John Adams is contending with, he's contending with a government, in part, that is corrupt, in, in, in Britain, in 1775, and trying to dig that out. What the, that's what the Congress is trying to do. They form the Congress to try to dig out this corruption, this tyranny, right? So they start they start passing these resolutions out of Congress. They're, they're trying to send—they sent a letter to General Gates. We read it on this podcast. They send a letter to King George III. They sent, they, they sent more than one, by the way. But they send letters to King George III. They're trying to get Parliament to understand where they're coming from. They can't do it. It doesn't work. They're trying to fight the corruption. They're trying to dig it out. They're trying to get into those trenches and dig it out, but they can't dig it out. It's fighting back. And eventually, you know, it fights back first with things like the Intolerable Acts, suspending charters, ending the judiciary, ending state legislature, or excuse me, colony uh, charters, assemblies, and so on and so forth, the elected legislatures, basically. And then eventually, it starts shooting. When it realizes that it cannot get the Founding Fathers to back off it starts shooting at them. That's why he says 
quote, a nation is easily corrupted but not so easily reformed, end quote. The people who try to do the reforming, who try to end the corruption, the bribery, etc., they, they usually end up getting shot at at some point. That's a sad commentary on society. It's a sad commentary on life, on history, but it's real. And that's why you just, you gotta try to keep your country from, from you gotta try to keep this stuff from getting dug in. And that's why you don't tolerate it. Don't accept it. Don't just go, oh, it's that's just the way business has worked up there in the state house, up in my state capital. It's bribery and corruption up there. We just got to deal with it. No, you don't. And don't do that. Stop it. That's a childish attitude. John Adams is telling you, stop it. This isn't me telling you. Again, I, I t I've told you folks before, 90% of the time, the things I say on this podcast, this isn't me talking. This is John Adams or somebody else or George Washington or somebody. I'm just the messenger. Because it's my voice, people are going to blame me for all saying all this, and they're going to, oh my gosh, that Roman character, he's so harsh, so stuck on this concept of uh, bribery and corruption and oh, solving all these problems and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, there's a reason for it. John Adams was that way. I've heard John Adams often referred to by historians as being, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but being a cynical individual. Like, like he was, uh, he was not, he was not the happy-go-lucky guy all the time. He was very realistic, cynical, not negative. Not hateful, not spiteful, but cynical. And a, a cynical person, I, I, I count my, me and, me and John Adams are like two peas in a pod, by the way. It's probably why I like his writings so much. I'm a cynical individual the same way John Adams was. And, and people like us are just realists. We acknowledge these real problems that really exist and we don't accept them. We don't just go along to get along. We don't just accept, oh, that's just the way it is. I guess we got to accept it. No, you don't. And why? Because he didn't want his children. He didn't want John Quincy. We just read a letter from John Adams to John Quincy in the previous episode. He didn't want John Quincy saddled with all this crap. So he was trying to reform it. And thank goodness he was trying to reform it. And he was trying to do it with a bunch of people in Congress and they were trying to do it the right way. They were trying to reform it by gathering together in the Congress and passing resolutions and trying to make their voice heard. And that's how you do it. Thank goodness. Unfortunately, the dictator wasn't having anything to do with it, and he decided to pull the long guns out and start shooting at people. But, at least for a time, the Founding Fathers tried to do to do the right thing. So again, and, and why do I talk so, so long about this, and why do I keep going back to that? The Founding Fathers tried to do it the right way. And reading the letter from Mr. Dilley, who was praising the work of Congress. Because again, people will try to manipulate this history. They will try to accuse the Founding Fathers of, of being trigger-happy of being hateful people who just wanted to start a war, blah, 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 blah. All the evidence to the contrary. This is the real history. This isn't me making it up. This isn't just a big steaming pile of crap. These are the words of John Adams and Edward Dilley, and others that we have read of a similar sentiment. And those other people out there that are trying to manipulate history, some of them history teachers, and they should be ashamed of themselves, because they, they bring shame and disgrace upon their profession. They have a responsibility. But for all those people out there who are trying to manipulate it, there's a reason why they will not read you this source material. They won't do it. Because it will make it will prove that their that their thoughts on this are wrong. The founding fathers were trying to do it the right way. Now, not all of them were. There, there's always a rabble rouser somewhere in the mix who wants to who wants to start a freaking war. There's always somebody out there. So sure that you can point to one particular character in the and in, in, in during this particular time period who just said, "Oh, let's just start a shooting war and get on with it." But that's not these people in Congress. That's not the leaders. Certainly not the vast majority of them. And John Adams was one of the bigger voices in that group of people. Very moderate individual. Very straightforward. But he makes his case plain here. With this payment of the debt, reduction of placement of pensioners, annihilation of bribery and corruption, reformation of luxury, dissipation, effeminacy, the disbanding of the army, etc. And trying to make sure that, that corruption doesn't get so set into the government, so set into the system that you can't dig it back out again. He's got a plan here. And it's a good one. Let's stick to John Adams' plan. Founding father of the United States... 
second president of the United States. Let's stick with John Adams' plan. I like it. And I'll have some concluding remarks in the next section. Let's go there right now. Absolutely. You know, because in these letters from the Founding Fathers, you are going to find solutions for every single problem that every country in the world is facing today. I firmly believe that. All you have to do is go back and look for the answer to the question. What's wrong with the United States today? How do we fix this? Well, John Adams has the answer for you right there. Boom. And a big piece of it was right there in that one paragraph that we just read. Right there. It's not hard to find, really. I mean, it is. It takes it takes time to research this stuff out and actually go track down the records. But, na- but not listening to this podcast. I mean, it's easy when you listen to this podcast, isn't it? Isn't that the beauty of this? I do the research, I do the work, and I present it to everybody so we can all benefit from this. I could just keep this research to myself, but why Why in the world do that when I can share it with you good folks? Because John Adams, you know, as a guest on the podcast, as I like to say, he he wants to speak to all of us. I, I like to, I, I know for a fact, but having read a lot of John Adams, I know for a fact that he would like that we are talking about his letters today. And that we're trying to carry his message forward because he really wanted the best for the United States of America. I really believe that. And so did, so did many other of the founding fathers. It wasn't just John Adams. We're going to be talking about more of these people in the months and years to come. He really did want the best for us. You think this guy wanted pe- the people of the United States to live in some kind of perpetual state of misery or something of that nature? Absolutely not. He wanted the best for his son, John Quincy, and his other two sons, for that matter, and his daughter. And, of course, his wife, Abigail. He saw, he saw a bright future, but he knew, as we talked about in the previous episode when he was talking about the sacrifices that the parents of the revolution, those people that had children like John Adams, the sacrifices that they would have to go through in the years to come. He knew that this stuff isn't, the freedom isn't free, like we keep saying. And he knew that it, you, you, every single generation has to pay attention to this stuff. You have to be diligent. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. So pay attention. Pay attention. And for crying out loud, let's continue to learn from these wise men who came before us, who have a lot to teach us. They certainly have a lot to teach me. I would be a lesser person today if I hadn't taken such time to study the Founding Fathers and what it is that they have to teach me. And I know that the Founding Fathers would appreciate you being here on our study group on this podcast listening to the words that they had to say. You don't have to agree with everything that they say, but understand the underlying sentiments that they're trying to convey to you. Of course, the Founding Fathers were flawed men, some more so than others, and they make mistakes, but that just makes them people. You know, sometimes, you know, people go back and they say, well, because these people weren't perfect, we can't listen to them because they weren't perfect. Well, that's not how the real world works. If that were the case, then nobody ever is going to listen to anybody, because show me one person who is perfect. Oh, wait, there was one, once upon a time. There was this one guy, long time ago. But anyway, I won't get into all that. But the Founding Fathers, you know, they did create something at least unique in the history of the world when they created the United States. The other governments of the world were pretty terrible. You know, people lived in just largely extreme poverty and under tyranny. The Founding Fathers were trying to change that a little bit at a time, and they were trying to create a a structure in which that could be realized. That is to say, a better life than the uh, the oppression and tyranny that most people were living under. So let's keep learning from them and let's keep uh, let's keep marching on on this podcast and I certainly do appreciate you folks joining me on this episode and I again I appreciate you bearing with me on this podcast as I have to cut some of these episodes short over the next few months as I as I continue to work on that other project 
and my schedule is just super, super busy. Thank goodness. Uh, I'm not complaining so much as, uh, as I'm just saying it's, um, it's just one, it's just, it just causes, it impacts the podcast. So I have to make you folks aware of it. I hope you enjoyed this long form podcast and, uh, first one that we've had in a couple of weeks. So with all that said, I will look forward to seeing you folks on the next episode. And until then, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.